Have you ever ordered a Big Mac at a McDonald's and they give you a filet of fish on accident and you think, well, violence is the only logical solution here. Yeah, no? Oh, well you are not quite built like 27-year-old Sadat Johnson in Midvale, Utah, who went through a McDonald's drive-thru at 1.30 in the afternoon on a Monday and, oh my God, drive-thru employee hands him the wrong food, so he responds by pulling out a gun and demanding the meal that he asked for. Now, luckily, the workers were smart. They say, okay, yeah, sure, go on to the front of the store. We'll get this fixed right away for you, sir. And by fixed right away, they immediately called 911 and shortly after, several police showed up. The police repeatedly tell the man to exit the car. He ends up refusing so they approach and end up dragging him out. But y'all, this story's not over yet. It gets even crazier. As they're trying to take him away into custody, one of the cops looks back and they see a gun pointing out of the rear window. The cop swipes the gun to the side right as it goes off and they realize the person holding it was four years old. Yes, this guy told his four-year-old to shoot at the police. At least that's what the police and a witness says. Plus, there was also another three-year-old in the backseat as well. And right, so as far as Johnson, he's kind of fucked right now. He's been charged with felony child abuse and threatening the use of a dangerous weapon. And while it does not come with additional jail time. All of that hopefully explains why Sadat Johnson is our douchebag of the day. And bouncing off of that, happy note, I say, sup, you beautiful bastards. Welcome back to the Philip DeFranco Show. Hit that like button to help spread some common sense news coverage. And let's just jump into it. And then let's talk about Millie Bobby Brown, her birthday and disgusting internet creep monsters. Right, so Millie just turned 18 over the weekend, which I think I and most other adults other than Drake were not aware was going to happen. While much of the online chatter were just fans wishing her a regular old happy birthday, uh, this became a news story. And that's because there was reporting that found that there were not safe for work online forums and subreddits counting down to her birthday. While one subreddit was reportedly banned, many people have been making inappropriate comments in other places as well. Or even on our own Instagram where she's posting pictures, you have people posting things like, oh, she's legal now, now I'm not a P word in my mind. Others tagging Drake, using sexual emojis and telling her to start an OnlyFans. With some of the most disgusting things happening on Twitter. With people posting explicitly sexual content regarding Millie, including deep fakes and other incredibly disturbing videos. And all of this has resulted in a number of people speaking out. Saying things like a reminder that sexualizing someone the moment they turn 18 is still creepy and weird as fuck. And if you were celebrating Millie Bobby Brown turning 18 so she's legal now, that absolutely means you were sexually attracted and fantasizing about her before she was legal, which makes you a fucking sexual predator of kids. Well, this is news because she just turned 18 and we're seeing this new surge. Like this isn't a new topic when it comes to Millie Bobby Brown. USA Today once published an op-ed titled How We Failed Millie Bobby Brown. And in that, noting a 2017 W Mag cover that said why TV is sexier than ever with it listing Millie as one of the examples. Also noting that a GQ profile once described her as a very grown up child. She is by no means the only one, right? You've even had other young stars speaking up about this, including Billie Eilish, who at the age of 17 said that she wore baggy clothes so she couldn't be sexualized, body shamed, or just had people commenting about her body in general. Though there are also examples of young women taking advantage of this. For example, you had Bad Baby, right? The Catch Me Outside girl, when she turned 18, she launches an OnlyFans. It pretty much breaks the site for the day. She reportedly made a million dollars in the first six hours. But obviously, like, that's not what Millie is doing. She's just simply posting a photo of herself on her birthday, right? But with all this, I do want to pass the question off to you. What are your thoughts here? And then, in major news, we saw break this morning. The three men who murdered Ahmad Arbery have been found guilty on all counts in a federal hate crimes trial. Right, Gregory McMichael, his son Travis, and their neighbor William Bryan were all convicted of Arbery's murder in a state court last year and sentenced to life in prison, with only Bryan eligible for parole. But all three men also face federal hate crime charges centered around the question of whether they were racially motivated when they chased down the 25-year-old black jogger in their cars before fatally shooting him back in February of 2020. Throughout the trial, prosecutors argued that the three men were driven up by pent-up 
up racial anger, presenting nearly two dozen racist and sometimes violent text messages and social media posts from the men. This including Travis McMichael's regular descriptions of black people as savages and monkeys, with witnesses also testifying about racist interactions they had with the defendants. But on the other side, the defense attorneys for the men claim that their histories of racist remarks were not proof that they targeted Arbery because of his race or violated Arbery's civil rights, arguing they acted because they suspected he had trespassed at a neighbor's property. But after just several hours of deliberation, the jury unanimously found the three guilty of civil rights violations and kidnapping, with the McMichaels also being hit with separate firearms charges. And so the men now face a maximum sentence of life in prison on top of their other life sentences, and they only have two weeks to appeal. But regardless, this is a big win for Arbery's family and many others who wish to see the men held accountable for their racially motivated actions. Right just last month, his family expressed outrage when DOJ prosecutors filed court documents asking a judge to approve a plea deal they had apparently reached with both McMichaels, with Arbery's mother condemning the move at that time, saying she wanted the courts to prove that the men had acted due to racist motivations and put any question of self-defense to rest, with her lawyer also arguing that it's only fair for these men to serve out their sentences in federal prison rather than state prison, which has much more favorable conditions, with a judge ultimately rejecting that plea deal and paving the way for the decision we saw today. But ultimately, that is where we are, and we're gonna have to wait to see what happens next. But from that, I wanna take a second to thank the fantastic sponsor of today's show, Keeps. Did you know that two out of three guys will experience some form of male pattern baldness by the time they're 35? And maybe you have that friend or that family member that's dealing with hair loss right now, and you don't have to just wait around for that to happen to you, because now is the time to do something about it. Keeps helps you stop hair loss before it's too late with their scientific and affordable approach to treatments that are up to 90% effective at reducing and stopping further hair loss. And Keeps offers generic versions of the only two FDA-approved hair loss products that are out there. So some of you may have already tried this before, but probably never at this price. And you can get these products delivered directly to your door. That means no more going in person to the doctor's office for your prescription, saving you both valuable time and money. So if you're ready to take action and prevent hair loss, go to keeps.com slash DeFranco, or just click that link in the description down below to receive 50% off your first order. And then a profoundly messy, divisive chapter in Canada's history has come to a close, but also not really at the same time. And let me explain, right? We've been talking about this. It began about three weeks ago with a whole lot of truckers in the capital, Ottawa, and now ending over the weekend with the biggest police operation in the country's history. For three days, Ottawa cops and riot gear towed away over 70 vehicles, arrested 191 people and dispersed crowds with pepper spray and stun grenades, clearing out the last remaining protesters on Sunday and extinguishing what supporters have called the Freedom Convoy that has disrupted residents' lives since January, but also has now spread internationally. But locally, in the end, a total of 389 charges were brought against 103 of the 191 arrested protesters, including three key organizers. Authorities also seizing at least 76 bank accounts using emergency powers. And just days before the operation, the Federal Royal Canadian Mounted Police ordered a freeze on 206 bank and corporate accounts, also flagging 253 Bitcoin addresses. But you can't say they didn't go down swinging with some protesters donning body armor, wielding fire, fireworks, throwing smoke grenades, and in one instance, even shooting a gas canister at police. With the authorities also saying things got extra messy because you had children being brought to the front of the demonstration, prompting the Ottawa police to tweet out, we told you to leave, we gave you time to leave, we were slow and methodical, yet you were assaultive and aggressive with officers and the horses. Based on your behavior, we are responding by including helmets and batons for our safety. And in addition to the capital crackdown, all of the US-Canada border blockades have been cleared now, which is absolutely massive dollars and cents news because they were previously costing around half a billion dollars in daily trade with the US, according to Canada's finance. Minister. Plus, the increased policing in Ottawa have cost that city millions of dollars. And so now, replacing the constant horn blaring, you have concrete barricades, metal fences, and relatively quiet city streets. And although police have said no one was seriously hurt, Ontario's police watchdog is investigating the case of a woman who was trampled by a horse. But with all that said, remember, this is only kind of over. I mean, just first up, crushing the protest doesn't fix the obvious social divisions that caused it in the first place. And while the police cleared the streets around Parliament over the weekend, lawmakers addressed just that, debating whether or not to ratify Justin Trudeau's invocation of the Emergencies Act and temporary 
measure giving the federal government extended powers to address the protests? Because while he invoked it Monday of last week, it actually took until this Monday night for the House of Commons to officially approve it for 30 days, voting 185 to 151. With conservative opposition lawmakers arguing this is an abuse of power. That has also resulted in op-eds popping up like this one in the Wall Street Journal, reading, Will Canadian Democracy Survive Justin Trudeau? Now with that, of course, there are people that say, you know, that's completely overblown, saying, you know, democracy itself is not at risk there, but also still wondering, did Trudeau go overboard with the response to all of this? Because there is the very legitimate debate that happens time and time again when we see instances like this of what's the difference between a lawful and unlawful protest, right? Where is that line? Are people lying about where the line is? They're manipulating the situation. Does it lead to some sort of power grab or overbearing government? And then, of course, the final thing we're gonna talk about today is the day that the office was shut down because there was an American holiday is the day that things heavily escalated between Russia and Ukraine. Right at the start of the weekend, things began to heat up. There were reports of more Russian troops being brought to the region despite Russian claims that they were withdrawing. On top of that, there was shelling seemingly between Russian separatists in the Donbass region and the Ukrainian army. Then suddenly there were alleged bombs in Donetsk, one of the breakaway capitals. All of that led to further Russian rhetoric about protecting the people there before those breakaway governments began evacuating women, children, and the elderly. And during all of this, you had Ukrainian President Zelensky asking for a concrete timeline of when Ukraine could be admitted to NATO and asking for the West to impose sanctions on Russia. And that speedrun explanation brings us to Monday where things really went off the rails. First off, Putin decided to officially recognize the Donetsk People's Republic and Luhansk People's Republic as independent states. Now that alone would have been bad enough, but to add insult to injury, he also guaranteed their security, meaning that any actions against them would be an action against Russia. Also to quote, help these breakaway republics, Putin sent Russian troops into the regions, meaning that Russian troops have again invaded Ukraine. And I say again, because it's important to remember that Russia already forcibly took Crimea in 2014, not to mention the fact that certain unmarked Russian troops have likely been in the Donbass region for a while. And a real quick thing, it's a, it's a side thing, but I do want to hit on because it's something important. A lot of outlets, even Western ones, followed Putin's lead in calling these invading troops peacekeepers. But calling them that, even in quotes, is widely seen as conceding some legitimacy to Putin's filled with lies narratives, while also possibly spreading the perception that Russian troops are some kind of neutral third party to keep the peace. They're not. They're there to infringe on Ukraine's sovereignty and at best help breakaway regions leave and at worst eventually annex them. And during his speech that recognized the independence of these territories, Putin, who once lamented the fall of the Soviet Union as the greatest geopolitical catastrophe in the last 100 years, also had some other rhetoric that shines light on how he sees the world. Saying, modern Ukraine was entirely and fully created by Russia, more specifically, the Bolshevik communist Russia. This process began practically immediately after the 1917 revolution, and moreover, Lenin and his associates did it in the sloppiest way in relation to Russia by dividing, tearing from her pieces of her own historical territory, with him adding that Ukraine was, quote, ancestral Russian lands. So understand, he's trying to set up this narrative that Ukraine has always been a part of Russia until 1917, and simply put, that's not true at all. Ukrainians were acting in their own interests at that time, and while we obviously don't have time to get into all of that right now, if you do want more info on that, check out Mike Duncan's Revolutions podcast. He's currently covering the Russian Revolution, and he goes into detail about how Putin's version of events is way off base. You also have the U.S. Embassy in Kiev giving a more concise meme version of events of why Putin is wrong here. But either way, the, the entire situation has led to a confrontation at the U.N. with the Russian ambassador to the U.N. justifying the invasion by claiming that it was to protect Russian-speaking people living in the region. While the Ukrainian ambassador demanded that Russia withdraw their recognition of the breakaway states. And following all of this, we had the expected reaction from the West, sanctions. Here in the US, President Joe Biden signed an executive order that target both the Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics. It'll essentially stop Americans from working with the regions by blocking new investment, trade, and financing by US persons to, from, or in the region.
regions. This also won't be the end of the road for sanctions with Jen Psaki adding, to be clear, these measures are separate from and would be in addition to the swift and severe economic measures we have been preparing in coordination with allies and partners should Russia further invade Ukraine. And as I was recording today, Biden spoke and detailed new sanctions on Russia, indicating that it would block transactions with two major banks there, including the country's military bank, as well as placing restrictions on refinancing its national debt. And this could be a major problem for Russia, as it's not uncommon for nations to pull out new loans to pay their old ones, and Western banks are one of the largest contributors for this around the world. But the U.S. wasn't alone here, right? This morning, with British Prime Minister Boris Johnson announcing targeted sanctions against five Russian banks and three wealthy individuals following Monday's events. This on top of other sanctions already in place due to Russia assassinating dissidents living in the U.K. However, many in the House of Commons on both sides made their displeasure at the sanctions known, though it's largely because they didn't go far enough. But you had Johnson defending them and saying, this is the first barrage of what we are prepared to do, and we hold further sanctions at readiness to be deployed alongside the United States and the European Union if the situation escalates still further. And the European Union as a whole is still working on its sanctions package with leaders saying that Russia will feel the pain, but in the meantime, some members have moved to limit what they can, with Germany making the absolutely massive move of suspending the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline, which would have been a major source of income for Russia when completed. But from here, the big question is, well, what happens next? Obviously, sanctions are on their way, but will things escalate? Is Ukraine essentially screwed and guaranteed to lose more territory to Russia? Because you have U.S. officials pretty sure that Russian troops will eventually invade parts of Ukraine that are actually controlled by the Ukrainian military. And that is because Russia seemingly recognized the territorial claims made by the breakaway regions, and 70% of which are still controlled by Ukraine. And to that end, we have continued reports of shelling on Ukrainian positions. And possibly one of the longest lasting effects of all this may be the proliferation of nuclear weapons. Where Ukraine used to have them. In fact, it had more than Russia after the fall of the Soviet Union, but they gave them up for assurances that it would remain independent. And so with all of this going down, the Ukrainian president lamented that decision, saying on Saturday, Ukraine has received security guarantees for abandoning the world's third nuclear capability. We don't have that weapon. We also have no security. And that last statement is something that many nations might feel after watching Russia eat up its neighbors. Where you either need to be in a security alliance with nuclear deterrence, or you need to make your own to maintain your sovereignty. But that ultimately is where that story and today's show ends. As always, thank you for being a part of these daily dives into the news, you beautiful bastards. My name's Philip DeFranco. You've just been filled in. I love yo faces, and I'll see you tomorrow.